Amen. Thank you, brass players. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth. Today is the ultimate day of hope. Our hope as Christians is that Jesus has conquered death, he's conquered the grave, and at the end he's going to break back into our world and say, enough, no more violence, no more war, no more poverty, no more sickness. He's going to put an end to all the wrongs and make them all right. And he's going to come with trumpets, is what we hear. Trumpets will announce him breaking back into our world. How appropriate to have trumpets and all these other horns on (laughs) Easter Sunday. There's nothing more hopeful than the blast of the trumpets. Hallelujah. When we left off last week in our series in the Gospel of John, if you're visiting with us, I've decided to preach through the Gospel of John throughout this entire year, actually starting with Advent of last year through November of 2019. And let me catch you up to speed on where we are right now. And we're starting chapter 6 today. And chapter 5 is about this incident where Jesus was in Jerusalem and he, he healed a man who had been lame his entire life for over 30 years. And after he healed that man, he got in big trouble with the Jewish authorities who said, you can't do that on on the Sabbath day. This is a day where you're commanded not to work, and healing someone is work. So you're in big trouble. And Jesus' response is, yeah, I am working because God the Father is working, and I and the Father are one. And if the Father is working, I must work too. Of course, the authorities didn't really care for that response, and They decided then and there that Jesus must be killed. Those events in chapter 5 led directly to what we know as Good Friday. Why is Good Friday good? Because on that day, Jesus took all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our condemnation on his own shoulders and paid the price that we could never have hoped to pay to make us right with God now and forever. But it wasn't done on Friday. He lay in the grave for those three days, but Sunday morning, he rose triumphant, conquering death and sin and the power of sin forever so that we don't have to fear death, so that we can know that death is not the end. It is only the beginning of our life with the Lord for eternity. Amen. So today, we're going to pick it up in chapter 6. And and it wasn't yet time for Jesus to fulfill God's plan on the cross yet. They wanted to kill him, but he said, nope, not yet. So he and his disciples made a speedy exit out from Jerusalem and back up to Galilee where he was from. And now again, this may seem like it's not a very appropriate Easter text, but let me assure you by the time we finish today, you'll see how this fits in to the resurrection and to how Jesus satisfies us through his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word this morning. As I read our text today, the word of the Lord from John chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. 
Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. Okay, before anybody panics and says, Wait a minute, this is Easter. I want to hear about the empty tomb. I want to hear about the angels sitting on the rock and saying, he is not here. He has risen. Let me briefly explain. There's a few reasons why this is a great Easter text. Did you know that there's only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels? Do you know what they are? Of course, the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection. All four miracles describe Jesus rising from the dead. You know what the other one is? The feeding of the 5,000. This is a great Easter text. We're going to talk about both of those miracles today. Another reason this is a great Easter text is found in verse 4. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Why does John mention that fact? Well, he's, he's setting the scene for what's about to happen here. This is a Passover story during the Passover festival. The Passover festival was kind of like 
uh, our Christmas today combined with 4th of July. It was a month-long celebration that involved vast preparations and, and families coming together, but it was wrapped up with this national pride and, and this national identity because they were celebrating the miraculous way in which God the Father had delivered his chosen people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt by his mighty right hand and delivered them safely through the wilderness, delivering them food, giving them food in the wilderness. You see where I'm going here? Giving them food in the wilderness and then bringing them safely across the Jordan and into the promised land. Passover celebrated all these things. So of course, John is celebrating that fact that they are given provision and providence in the wilderness. Also, John's pointing forward to one year from now, a year later at the next Passover, Jesus would be celebrating this event in the upper room with his disciples one last meal where he would take the bread and break it, foreshadowing what was about to happen to his body only a few hours later. So before we get to the resurrection, let's start with the, the feeding of the 5,000. This, this is the fourth sign in the, these, these signs narratives between chapter 2 and chapter 11 in this gospel. John gives us these seven signs uh, about Jesus and First, Jesus turned water into wine, then he healed the official's son, and then he healed the lame man. Now he feeds this hungry crowd. Remember that the, the signs are meant to reveal Jesus to be the Son of God. Remember, signs themselves are not the point. Signs are meant to lead us to something more significant than the sign itself. Does that make sense? You don't want to mistake the sign for the thing that it's pointing to. Most people who've ever been to church have heard this story. It's, like I said, in all four Gospels, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Over the course of my life, I've heard many different interpretations, many different takes on this miracle. Some people say that the real miracle in this story takes place in the hearts of the people who are gathered because as they see this young boy who is so generous and opens all that he has, his meager lunch, as he shares that, they're inspired to share what little they have too. And suddenly, they all have enough food because of the miracle of generosity in their hearts. And while I'm sure that's a valid point that we should be inspired by the generosity of this boy, that's clearly not the point of this text. Other people say that there's a, a sacramental element that's going on where each person really just received a tiny morsel of bread or of fish, kind of like when we celebrated communion here at our Maundy Thursday service. Each person just gets a little bite, and Jesus presides over this sacramental communion-type meal where everyone's just satisfied by a little morsel. But that's not what the text says either, is it? The text says they each ate until they had their fill. The original language actually says something more like they ate until they were stuffed. They were fully full and satisfied. It was not just a morsel that they had. So I've also heard this story taught with the emphasis on Jesus' compassion. 
The other Gospels, when they tell this story, they talk about how Jesus was moved to compassion for the hungry crowds before him. He cared for the hungry, and so must we. That's true. But even recently, I've heard preachers try to reduce Jesus' teachings and his miracles and even his death on a cross to mere moral imperatives. They become fables about how you should be a good person. They just are reduced to this idea of, well, Jesus did this. He cared for people, and, and so should we. And that's absolutely true. The what would Jesus do bracelets? That's, he, he is the perfect example for us to look to. We have an amazing food pantry ministry here that feeds hundreds of hungry people every year. And I'm convinced that it, it doesn't get much more biblical than that kind of work. Visiting those in prison, feeding the hungry, absolutely biblical imperatives. But to say that Jesus is our example is again missing the main point of this miracle. The problem with that kind of approach to Jesus's miracles by just saying that those are examples for us to follow, to feed and love our neighbor, is that it separates the way that Jesus feeds and loves us from the way that we feed and love others. Jesus feeds us in the gospel, in the good news of what he's done. At our Maundy Thursday service just a couple days ago, we talked about how the only reason that we even know how to love others is because he first loved us. We need to remember that is the impetus for all the ministry that we do. The radical, overwhelming love that God has shown us is called the gospel, the good news, the best news. And it centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These events of this week Whenever we try to reduce the Bible into fables, into morality lessons, we lose the gospel power that underlies any application of the truth. We have to remember the gospel is the foundation for it all. So that kind of teaching makes Jesus out to just be our example. You know, Jesus did it, so therefore, so should we. But this passage, and really the entire Easter story, shows us the opposite. Jesus is is not our example. He is supremely unique. Jesus alone is the divine Son of God who took on flesh. Jesus alone does what only He could do. He has done what we could never have done for ourselves or for our neighbors. Jesus has accomplished our forgiveness, our salvation, our eternal life. To understand this miracle of of feeding the 5,000 as the sign that it is, we must see and appreciate the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So the crisis in this story really comes about as a logistics issue because of Jesus' surging popularity. Rumors about him are spreading throughout the region And these crowds begin to come out of the woodwork to follow him, to see him, to gain access to his healing power. It would appear that that the crowds were simply unmanageable. The the disciples were faced with a 
a huge problem of logistics. They couldn't handle all the lodging, the food, the facility issues that came with a, a crowd of that size. Now, I've never been to one of those multi-day music festivals, you know, and I, I probably never will because I, I love music. I love live music, absolutely. But uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of crowds. That's weird for a pastor to say, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm even less a fan of, like, uh, having to camp in dirty, uh, rough conditions for three, four days, whatever, uh, limited access to hygiene and, and facilities like that. Uh, I, I have no interest uh, in, in that, honestly. I had s- several friends who were stuck in the mud for hours last year at the Pilgrimage Fest down in Franklin as the parking lot there on the grass quickly turned into a swamp. And so several of them were my age, and they had kids at home with babysitters who they were paying by the hour, and they were sitting there soaking wet in their cars, trying to get out for hours and hours. It was a logistics nightmare, as these things tend to be. That's the kind of issue that Jesus and his disciples were facing in this moment. Some of these people who had come out to see him had traveled for miles and miles on foot because they heard that Jesus, the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, was there. So they, they, they came and they weren't adequately prepared for the journey. They, they failed to bring provisions and, and think about their lodging. There's no plan for, for supper. The shadows start to lengthen. It's getting late in the day and the, the reality of the crisis sets in. So Jesus says to Philip in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus is a masterful teacher, isn't he? He's not really asking Philip for a solution. He's teaching him and teaching us about his unique ability to satisfy this entire crowd without breaking a sweat. I can relate to Philip. He's kind of cynical. He's kind of panicked. I relate to that. Look at verse 7. He says, what? Buy bread? 200 denarii. That's about... $20,000 wouldn't feed this crowd. And Jesus, you know we don't have those kinds of funds in the treasury. Come on. Philip's a bean counter, apparently. I'm sure Philip was on the finance committee of the disciples. (laughs) I'm truly, I'm grateful for all the practical, bean counting, resourceful people in this church. Lord knows we need them to keep people like me in, in line and on track. But we also need people who are willing to radically trust Jesus and to follow with faith wherever he may lead, no matter how scary it may be, to trust him to do what only he can do, that we cannot do on our own. So all the disciples can come up with is we got this kid, the small boy. In in Greek, it's like, you know how in Spanish, instead of saying niño for boy, niñeto is like little boy? That's how it is. We got this little boy, and he's got this, this really meager lunch. We got that, Jesus. That's all we have. And it's barley loaves. Barley bread was poor people's bread. It was real cheap and coarse and not very good. And then the, the fish here are probably small roasted minnows, really just meant to kind of put between the loaves to try to cover up the tasteless dry bread of the barley bread. There's a theme of of scarcity and poverty happening here, of not enough, 
You know, the Bible talks about, about eating and drinking as, as evidence of God's blessing, as evidence of his divine provision and presence. And these scenes in the Bible of famine represent the opposite of God's absence. And contrast that with the scenes of feasting, where God's people celebrate his miraculous provision by eating and drinking with thanksgiving to the Lord. So the disciples took stock of what they had, and they determined the only solution was to send the people away. <laughs> Great idea. Someone else would have to help them. Let them fend for themselves. It was their own fault for not bringing enough food to eat. Let them go deal with somebody else. It's basically their answer. All we have is this one meager lunch. But is that really all they had? They had one with them who was Christ the Lord. They had one with them whose resources are never exhausted, who never has to worry about scarcity or lack of provision. They had the sovereign son of God right next to them. Had they already forgotten how in Cana, in chapter 2, he had turned water into wine, the best wine they'd ever had? They'd just seen him. They just recently in Jerusalem saw him go over to a paralyzed man for 38 years and say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he did, right then. Jesus has no exhaustible resources. He's infinitely powerful and able to help these people. But Jesus just smiles because they're thinking in earthly terms. They're thinking in purely physical, earthly terms. And he says, have the people sit down in the new spring grass. There's plenty of spring grass in this area, so the people sit down. And, and then he does something crazy. He does something outrageous. He, he, he gave thanks for the food. People probably wondered, why is he giving thanks for the food? There is no food. What's he doing? But then he does what he did with creation in the very beginning. He makes something out of nothing. We call that ex nihilo creation, out of nothing. He spoke the universe into being, and out of nothing, he creates lunch for these people. He starts tearing the bread and the fish into pieces and distributing it, and it just keeps on coming. Just keeps on coming. He keeps sending out baskets of this stuff, and it's miraculous how it just keeps multiplying. And the people start murmuring, what's, what's going on? He just keeps coming up with bread. He keeps passing out all this fish. What's happening? And pretty soon that murmur builds into a roar. These people realize that he's making supper out of nothing, and they say, this guy's awesome. Not only is he awesome, he's the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. He's come. Let's make him king. We'll never be hungry again. We can kick the Romans out. I won't have to plow in the dusty ground in the heat of the day anymore because this guy can give us all the food we could ever want. He should be king. Let's go grab him and put him on the throne and make him king of Israel. But of course, Jesus knows better. He knows that this is not the point of what he's doing. These people are assuming what most people in our world assume, that their deepest needs are physical, earthly needs. 
So Jesus shakes his head and he escapes up into the mountains alone, as he often does. In verse 16, the disciples are left without their teacher, and I suspect they're a little disappointed that Jesus didn't say, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Give me a throne. I want to kick the Romans out too. They probably said, this is it. We're going to be ruling. And Jesus says, you don't get it. And he goes up into the mountains. So they say, well, let's go home. So they get in a boat and they go across the, the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum. And they're missing the point again. So they're right in the middle of the, the lake. It's about eight miles across. They're three or four miles out. And this huge storm comes up. And these are well-seasoned seafaring fishermen. And they're freaking out. It's terrifying. The wind, the waves, the lightning. And then Jesus comes walking up to them right in the middle of the sea, which of course terrifies them. And then he says, it is I, or I am, like God's name. I am Yahweh. Do not be afraid. He's basically telling them, look, guys, although I didn't allow them to make me an earthly king over Israel, you have to know as my disciples that I am king over all, including king over the earth and the elements. But the crowd wasn't having it. They weren't going to be abandoned by their future king. So when the boats come back across from Tiberias, they, they get in the boats and they follow Jesus across the lake. And when they find him, they say, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? In verse 25. And Jesus doesn't answer them. He says, oh, well, sometime a couple hours ago. He doesn't say that. He cuts right to the heart of what's going on and he tells them something devastating in verse 26. He answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, the, the crowd saw the miracle, but they missed the sign, the sign that points to the Messiah. Jesus basically is telling them, you all got in these boats and followed me over here because of the things I have given you. You want me to be king because I've given you stuff. You think I'm a material savior as if that's what really matters. They wanted what Jesus could give them, but they didn't want Jesus. I love the story of Abraham in the the first half of Genesis. He's a hero in the Jewish and the Christian and the Muslim faiths. Great man of God. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram to, to leave his family, his, his country, his father's household, and just to go not knowing where he's going to the land that God would show him and that God would make him into this great nation and that he would bless him and take care of him. But after years of traveling, and not seeing any fruit from it. Abram in, in chapter 15 cries out to God and says, what is going on, God? I have no nation, I have no land, and now I'm old, I have no offspring, no children. And God says, you're gonna have a son named Isaac. And he's gonna have two sons named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob will have 12 sons and they will father a great nation. And Abram says, great, let's do it. When's that going to happen? I've waited a long time. And God says, in 500 years. But what about my land? 
for the kingdom. You told me I'd have all this land. When am I going to get the promised land? And God says, in, in 500 years, you'll be long gone. What? I've left everything behind. I've, I've sacrificed it all to follow you, God. What will you give me? And then God tells him in Genesis 15, verse 1, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, Yahweh your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He's saying, Abram, look, I know you don't have land, you don't have a son yet, but you have something far greater. You have me. I've given you the gift of myself. I will be your shield. I will be with you, the God of the universe. That's what Easter is really all about. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple between God and creation was torn in two. The separation between us and God is no more. And through the power of the resurrection, we have something far greater than any earthly treasure, and I mean that. I want you to believe that in your heart today, that because Jesus rose from the dead, we actually gain victory over death and sin and hell forever. Our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that, that Mark Edwards could stand up here and say that though his wife died of cancer, a mighty fortress is our God because of the resurrection. She is only sleeping. We will rise again just like Jesus rise. Made like him, like him we rise. As we sang earlier, our hope is based on this fact this gift in reality of eternal life is infinitely more worthy, infinitely more satisfying, infinitely more meaningful and fulfilling than anything that you could possibly attain in this earth alone. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too may be raised into a whole new kind of life. Life as a citizen in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work the way the kingdom of earth works. God's economy isn't like our economy. God's provision and his blessing isn't about what we can get in this life. Look at Romans 14, 17. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How many of you need peace today? How many of you need joy that abides deep in your heart? That comes through being a member of the kingdom. Undeserved righteousness, perfect peace, never-ending joy are ours through Jesus Christ in the resurrection kingdom. Do you have Jesus in your heart? Do you have the risen Savior living inside of you? Then you have enough. In fact, you have everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus minus everything equals everything. <laughs> Jesus is all you need. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Our only hope, our only shot at, at victory over death and the grave is the resurrection of Jesus. Without that, we have nothing. We are futile in our sins, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The path of life is the Easter path of a resurrected spiritual 
life. Jesus did not rise from the grave in order to meet our physical needs. That stuff doesn't matter in the end. That stuff that we, we worry about, we fret about so much. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. They don't spin, they don't toil, but not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like these flowers you see before you today. All of us know people in our lives who have shipwrecked their own lives on the rocks of materialism. Jesus rose from the dead so that our deep-seated, not always recognized need for resurrection life and for new life could be fulfilled. And trying to fulfill that God-shaped hole in our heart with material things, with stuff, will always leave us hungry and unsatisfied. Only the risen Jesus can satisfy what we really long for. Chasing after the idols of this world will only end in destruction every time. So here's the closing. Do you long for spiritual renewal? Do you long to have your sins atoned for? Do you have a spiritual hunger inside of you? Or are you only chasing after things of this world? Are you broken over the sin in your life, knowing that it only leads to destruction and ultimately death? Do you aspire to live the abundant, resurrected life that Jesus came to bring you? We're going to close with these words from Paul, a warning from Philippians chapter 3. In verse 19, he says, Brothers and sisters, join me and join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is basically a homeless man, not your hero necessarily. For many of whom I've often told you about and now tell you even with tears, it's tragic how these people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. What a great phrase. Their God is their belly. They worship their appetites. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious resurrected body by the power the resurrection power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Is your God your belly? Are you chasing after your earthly appetites? Or do you aspire to live as a resurrection person, seeking the higher life, knowing that that is the path of true, abundant life and flourishing now and forever and eternity? Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for succumbing to the culture around us that says that this life is about obtaining things. Forgive us for buying into the lies that are blasted at us all day through advertising that tells us we'll be happy if only we purchase such and such. God, we all fall for these lies. I pray that you would help us to understand that true life Abundant, resurrected life comes only through your Holy Spirit indwelling us through the power of the resurrection. God, I thank you that you did not stay in the grave, but that you burst forth on Easter morning 
showing us the power that we too can possess, that we too can live a whole new kind of existence, that we can be raised to walk in newness of life just as you were raised. Now in this life and in the next life as well. Lord God, we thank you for Easter Sunday, for the hope that we have, that death has lost its sting, that hell has not won the victory, but that you have. God, we praise you for conquering death and for giving us the hope of resurrection. Help us to live as resurrection people as we talk about being satisfied in you and not by the things of this world over the next couple weeks. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your high and holy, powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. We're going to sing, There is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God's own Son, the unique Son of God. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, we here at Woodmont Baptist Church believe in believer's baptism, that you come to faith, a saving knowledge where you pray a prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart and make you new from the inside out, that you want to die to your old self and be raised into a whole new kind of life. We were going to have a baptism today. We postponed it because the, the lady we were going to baptize is uh, newly engaged, and she wants her fiancé to be present, which is wonderful. But uh, next week, we're going to baptize uh, Caroline Rogers. She's in Knoxville with her grandparents, but we're going to see this beautiful symbol of dying to self and being raised. If you've never done that, if you've never been baptized, I invite you to come forward now. Maybe you feel the Holy Spirit talking to you now, and you want to partake in the sacrament of baptism here at Woodmont Baptist Church. Maybe you want to join Woodmont. Maybe you've kind of been doing the Christian life on your own, and you're ready to be a part of the body of Christ. Christianity is a team sport. You can't do it on your own. You're not perfect. Neither are we, but we would love to have you join our family of faith. I love this family of faith. It's a multi-generational, warm, and friendly family. And if you know you need to join a family like this, come forward now. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody. I'd invite Brad and, and Trey, if you'll come, and Jan, if you'll come as well. If you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, I've prayed with all these people and uh, respect them deeply. If you have something in your life that you just want to pray with somebody about, and you all have something, I know, uh, then come forward now during this time. Let's stand and sing, There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son.